Watch and listen to Talking News every day at 12 noon and 6 p.m. on Channel 96 Comcast Xfinity and Channel 30 Verizon Fios. It can also be heard Mondays and Tuesdays at 4.30 p.m. and Wednesdays at 12.30 p.m. on Channel 9 Xfinity and Channel 29 Fios. Listen anytime on the BMC Podcast Network on SoundCloud and iTunes. Just search for the Belmont Media Podcast Network. And now on to the talking news. White sharks aren't the issue. Gray seals are. By Peter Howell. Last summer's white shark attacks off Cape Cod beaches, one resulting in the first human fatality in the state in over 80 years, highlight the fact that the times change and our, acrim- uh, and our marine ecosystem is evolving and laws need to adjust to these changing realities. However tragic those shark attacks are for the victims and their families, the white sharks are not the issue. They simply dramatize it. The ever-increasing population of gray seals is the issue. Gray seals obviously have a legitimate place in the natural system, which should be protected. At the time the Marine Mammal Protection Act was passed 46 years ago, that law was needed and appropriate, and appropriate to protect marine mammals, including gray seals, that, that had been all but extirpated. But in contrast to the Endangered Species Act, that passed just a year earlier, the MMPA does not provide for delisting recovered species. Hence, gray seals are, in effect, legally protected in perpetuity, regardless of stock status, which is to say regardless of how many there are. This indefinite legal protection, irrespective of numbers, is arguably inconsistent with two of the principal metrics cited in the Act, which are to achieve an optimum sustainable population consistent with the carrying capacity of the habitat. Furthermore, the absence of a delisting provision is implicitly inconsistent with other of the Act's principal goals, which is the health and balance of the ecosystem at large, to wit, does not does not to uh, not the continued indefinite legal protection of a dominant predator with a few natural controls over its population raise questions about the impact on the health and balance of our marine ecosystem. A realistic start to addressing this issue would be to amend the 1972 Marine Mammal Protection Act to provide for delisting recovered species such as the gray seal. Admittedly, while delisting would not uh, resolve the issues of controlling seal population growth or related white shark attacks, it would be reasonable a reasonable first step for the following reasons. It would require the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, the agency charged with administering and enforcing the Marine Mammal Protection Act to address the question of when to delist and uh, and toward that end to finally assess the gray seal population stock 
in terms of the aforementioned criteria listed in the act, namely optimum sustainable population and carrying capacity of the habitat. It, it would shift NOAA's focus from restoration of particular species to the health and balance of the marine ecosystem as a whole, taking into account the status of other marine species, such as our beleaguered cod fishery, with which gray seals coexist and compete for survival. It has been argued that amending the Marine Mammal Protection Act to provide for delisting would somehow weaken the act. On the contrary, it would strengthen the law by recognizing and better aligning it with the ecosystem-based management, a scientific concept that has been greatly evolved since the MMPA was enacted. Delisting would not in and of itself jeopardize or impede gray seal recovery, and it would not sanction return to hunting or culling seals. If the gray seals were delisted, a post-delisting monitoring plan could be prepared as in the case with the Endangered Species Act, to ensure that the gray seal population remains viable and recovered. NOAA should publicly acknowledge the success of the Marine Mammal Protection Act in restoring a viable gray seal population in the northwestern Atlantic, and Congress should amend the law to, to permit NOAA to celebrate the success of delisting gray seals and allowing NOAA to focus henceforth on ensuring a balanced and healthy marine ecosystem. And now on to my colleague, Claire. Thank you, Barb. Chinese scientist says he edited the genes of twin girls, DNA altered to boost resistance to HIV infection, by Marilyn Marchione. Hong Kong, a Chinese researcher claims that he helped make the world's first genetically edited babies, twin girls whose DNA he said alt he altered with a powerful new tool capable of rewriting the very blueprint of life. If true, it would be a profound leap of science and ethics. A U.S. scientist said he took part in the work in China, but this kind of gene editing is banned in the U.S., because the DNA changes can pass to future generations and it risks harming other genes. Many mainstream scientists think it's too unsafe to try, and some denounce the Chinese report as human experimentation. The researcher, He Jiankui of Shenzhen, said he altered embryos for seven couples during fertility treatments, with one pregnancy resulted thus far. He said his goal was not to cure or prevent an inherited disease, but to try to bestow a trait that few people naturally have, an ability to resist possible future infection with HIV, the AIDS virus. He said the parents involved declined to be identified or interviewed, and he would not say where they live or where the work was done. There is no independent confirmation of his claim and it has not been published in a journal, where it would be vetted by other experts. He revealed it Monday in Hong Kong to one of the organizers of an international conference on gene editing that is set to begin Tuesday 
and earlier in exclusive interviews with the Associated Press. I feel a strong responsibility that it's not just to make a first, but also make it an example, he told the AP. Society will decide what to do next in terms of allowing or forbidding such science. Some scientists were astounded to hear of the claim and strongly condemned it. It's unconscionable, an experiment on human beings that's not morally or ethical, ethically defensible, said Dr. Kiran Musunuru, a University of Pennsylvania gene editing expert and editor of a genetics journal. This is far too premature, said Dr. Eric Topol, who heads the Scripps Research Translational Institute in California. We're dealing with the operating instructions of a human being. It's a big deal. However, one famed geneticist, Harvard University's George Church, defended attempting gene editing for HIV, which he called a major and growing public health threat. I think this is justifiable, Church said of that goal. In recent years, scientists have discovered a relatively easy way to edit genes. The strands of DNA that govern the body, the tool called CRISPR-Cas9, makes it possible to operate on DNA to supply a needed gene or disable one that's causing problems. It's only recently been tried in adults to treat deadly diseases, and the changes are confined to that person. Editing sperm, eggs, or embryos is different. The changes can be inherited. In the U.S., it's not allowed except for lab research. China outlaws human cloning, but not specifically gene editing. Now, over to Max. Thank you, Claire. From Canada, Ideas to Help Addicts Stay Safe by Felice J. Freyer. The state's Harm Reduction Commission recently held its first meeting to study the controversial proposal to open a place or places where people could inject illicit drugs under medical supervision. The commission, created by the opioid legislation signed into law in August, has until February to report to the legislature on the risks and benefits of establishing a, quote, supervised injection facilities or safe injection sites. The sites provide a clean, safe place for people to inject illicit drugs obtained elsewhere with medical staff on hand to rescue them if they overdose, as well as opportunities for health care and links to addiction treatment. More than 100 such sites operate around the world, including dozens in Canada. But so far, none has opened in the United States, despite interest in several cities. The first such facility in North America, InSight, opened in Vancouver, British Columbia in 2003. The Globe recently sat down with Dr. Mike Mark Tyndall, a Canadian health official who helped found InSight and has published extensive research about safe injection sites. Here are edited excerpts of the conversation. Is there strong evidence about the effectiveness of supervised injection sites? When we were setting up InSight, I was obviously looking for evidence from safe injection sites in Europe. But you talk to people running these sites in Europe, and they were, oh, we just did it. Why wouldn't you do it? It was a common sense thing. When InSight opened, crime went down in the area. Overall drug use intensity went down. So did overdose deaths in that neighborhood in the years after InSight opened. 
people were less likely to access emergency departments or to be admitted to hospitals. The number of needles discarded went down. Over a three-year period, Insight clients were more likely to go into treatment than people not using the site. We've had over 3.5 million visits to Insight, and no one has ever died there. Today, there are 31 safe injection sites in British Columbia and several others in other provinces. But no matter how much evidence you have from one site or one city, it's never going to be enough to satisfy. The scientific approach will never be enough for the naysayers. So I'm really going to the common sense thing. People have the idea if we don't allow them, allow them to inject at supervised sites, then they won't inject. But we know what they're doing right now, taking their needles into public washrooms or children's parks or abandoned buildings. Any alternative to that has to be better. Why has the overdose rate gone up in British Columbia in recent years despite the presence of safe injection sites? All the excess deaths we've seen are due to the introduction of fentanyl and cafenetyl, excuse me, carfentanil, the powerful synthetic black market opium. If we took fentanyl out of the equation, the number of people dying would be steady. People who are using heroin often have long careers of heroin use. If they get the amount of the drug they're used to, overdoses are pretty unlikely. The drugs people bu are buying on the street, they basically have no idea of the toxicity. Do safe injection sites become a route to recovery? Many people, given the opportunity to stabilize, will choose a better route for themselves. I don't think we should judge that, that they have to stop using drugs and recover and get a job and move to the suburbs. That's just an impractical explanation or expectation for a lot of people. By stabilizing, people tend to make the best decisions for themselves and get as far as they can. And it's not for me to judge where that ends. But I do see a lot of healthier people because they've got harm reduction services, and to me that's important. The current debate now is how we get people a safe supply of drugs. A safe supply of drugs? All the harm reduction in the world doesn't stop people from buying street drugs in the alley and using them and dying. We can intercept them at supervised injection sites. We can find people who've overdosed and give them naloxone, a chemical name for Narcan. But that's a very late intervention. I've given so many tours through Insight, and the first question is, well, don't you give drugs here? Oh, no. People go perform sex acts and break into cars. That's how they get their drugs. Isn't that ridiculous? If people are using these things, I think we should give them a safer supply, and then we can start engaging them down the road. We're starting, hoping to start a pilot study in the next three or four months. We give people a secure supply of drugs from a dispensing machine. It would give, give out hydromorphone pills using biometrics to ensure only those authorized can get the pills. It would give them time to interrupt their chaotic cycle of finding drugs. Over to you, Bob. Thank you, Max. Marky targets robocall scams by, uh, by Andy Rosen. Thousands of holiday uh, dinners were, will be interrupted this season by buzzing phones bearing recorded messages from telemarketers promising wealth and threatening financial ruin. But here's something to be thankful for. By next year, the national plague of robocalls could be in retreat. That's the, there's a new resolve in Congress to crack down on attempted phone scams with the support of phone companies, 
which are independently implementing new technologies to stop them. In a rare moment of bipartisanship this month, United States Senator Edward J. Markey of Massachusetts joined John Thume, a South Dakota Republican, to sponsor a bill that would make it easier for the Federal Communications Commission to levy $10,000 fines against people caught making unwanted robocalls. The measure would also order phone companies to take steps to contain the activity. Maki, as a member of the House, played a leading role in the passage of the Telephone Communicator Consumer Protection Act, which in 1991 banned unsolicited robocalls. But the law has not aged well, as cell phones have proliferated and the nation's telephone infrastructure has undergone dramatic changes. We need to make sure that we are keeping pace with the fraudsters, keeping pace with those who are not abiding by the law, Maki said in an interview. There were an estimated 5.1 billion robocalls placed nationwide in October, according to Umail, a company that offers automated robocall blocking. Umail said the number was the largest it had ever tallied. In Massachusetts, the organization calculated 53 million calls last month. Alex Quisilli, chief executive of Umail, said as many as 60% of the calls are either scams or unwanted telemarketing offers. The scale of the problem is putting increasing pressure on both policymakers and telecommunications companies to take action. Maki and Thune's proposal has gotten a warm reception from industry interests, including Verizon, as well as advocates such as Consumer Reports, all of whom say they believe it would make a difference. FCC Chairman uh, Jay Pai has also praised the measure. It's high time that the phone companies take action now, said Maureen Mahoney, a policy analyst following the robo-call issue for Consumer Reports. I think this legislation will help push phone companies to move forward. By fighting uh, robo-calls has provided a difficult technical challenge. There are tools available for both customers and phone companies to block calls from unwanted numbers and organizations, but many robo-callers have found ways to spoof calls, making it hard for the receiver to know where the call truly originated. The problem emerged after, after phone companies broadly adopted voice-over-internet protocol systems, whose design makes it easier for callers to conceal their true numbers. That's why many of the unwanted calls that come to your phone often appear on your caller ID with a phone number that looks like it's from your neighborhood, sometimes even sharing the first three digits of your number. Phone companies have been working on a way to put a stop to spoofing, concerned that the proliferation of robocalls is undermining confidence in the phone system. And now on to my colleague, Claire. Thank you. <clears throat> New England shrimp won't be available at all this year. Associated Press. 
A small amount of New England shrimp has been available in recent years, but that will not be the case this winter. The next few years of a shutdown of the New England shrimp industry will extend to a limited research-based fishery that has helped provide a small amount of shrimp to retailers. Regulators recently decided to extend a moratorium on northern shrimp fishing until 2021. In some previous years of the moratorium, New England shrimp trawlers and trappers could bring some of the seafood to market via the research set aside. Quote, the Atlantic States Marine Fisheries Commission has ruled that the population of shrimp is so low that even the research program can't be continued. Canadian fishermen harvest the same species but their product is difficult to find in the United States, rendering the shrimp essentially off the market for U.S. consumers. The shrimp population has fallen as the Gulf of Maine has warmed. The fishery was first shut down in 2013. Fishermen from Massachusetts, New Hampshire, and Maine formally harvested the shrimp. Now here's Max. Thank you, Claire. A Retail Approach to Mental Health Boston Firm Opens Clinic at Walmart by Felice J. Freyer A Boston company is taking the concept of retail health care to a new level, offering mental health treatment at, in a Walmart. Beacon Health Options, which manages mental health care for 40 million people, has opened a small clinic in the discount department store in Car Carrollton, Texas. The company plans to roll out the program in other retail locations nationwide with the goal of increasing access to mental health care. Beacon has no immediate plans for a Massachusetts location. Local providers told of the plans for retail clinics expressed skepticism, asserting that Beacon could accomplish the same goal by working more effectively with its current network of providers. But Beacon officials portray the retail clinic program as an effort to bring mental health services to underserved areas in a way that will make it easy and comfortable to seek help. Staffed for now with one licensed clinical social worker, the clinic offers treatment for anxiety, depression, grief, relationship issues, and the stress of everyday living. Patients can walk in to request an appointment or sign up online or over the phone. The goal is to fight stigma and simplify the process of finding help, while also assuring quality, said Russell C. Petrella, Beacon Health's president and CEO. People don't know how to find a behavioral health or mental health professional, Petrella said. People don't know where to go and what to do. The retail clinics will promise access to a credentialed professional in a familiar environment, he said. Over to you, Bob. Thank you, Max. Belmont Composts achieves goal. Belmont Composts uh, reached their goal of 300 residential customers in Belmont signing up for a Black Earth helping to reduce the price of weekly curbside service to $99 per year. All residents that have pre-registered should now go to blackearthcompost.com and sign up for weekly service. Once you have completed the sign-up form, Black Earth will dis deliver your green bin within 10 days and your pickups will begin the week after the bin delivery. Pickups in East Belmont, that's Common Street and East, are Monday. Pickups west of Common Street are Tuesdays. 
Bins should be curbside and easily visible for the driver by 7 a.m. Black Earth Compost is also offering free weekly pickup and compostable bags to customers who are willing to store about 25 curbside bins at home and give them out to new Belmont subscribers. This will save Black Earth from needing to take an extra trip out to Belmont to deliver bins and prevent them from burning up that extra fossil fuel. If interested, contact Julie Wu at JWUSAUK at AOL.com. And over to Claire. Thanks, Bob. Franklin Park newly spiffed up by Katie Camaro. Renovations to the 485-acre Franklin Park are near completion after six years of improvements to its pathways and entrances. The $7.25 project is the largest investment in the park since the golf clubhouse was opened in 1998, the Boston Parks and Recreation Department said. Established in 1885, the park is the largest in Boston and the crowning jewel of park designer Frederick Law Olmsted, according to the city's website. The park was placed in the heart of Boston so city dwellers could enjoy rural scenery. The park used to be 527 acres, but the allotted space lost 42 acres after the construction of the Lemuel Shattuck Hospital in the 1950s, the website said. The most significant change included the relocation of the Franklin Park Maintenance Yard's entrance from Circuit Drive, which is adjacent to Lemuel Shattuck Hospital, to Canterbury Street, the statement said. The move was intended to move traffic to and from the maintenance yard away from the main interior pathways that are frequented by cyclists and pedestrians, the statement said. Because traffic no longer flows through the area, the city added parking markers along the curbs, where visitors usually park their car, at the Shattuck Picnic Grove, Tennis Courts, and Scarborough Pond, BPR spokesman Ryan Woods said. Three parking spaces for vans were added along the curbs as well, with an accessible route for wheelchairs to the tennis courts. Improvements to the Playstead field are complete, including accessible pathways and picnic tables, the statement said. The Franklin Park Coalition was one of the first groups to enjoy the improved pathways, the statement said. Other improvements include improved pathways on the pedestrian circle loop that circles the lower portion of Franklin Park, including the William J. Devine Golf Course. Repointed stone bridges. Repaving on entrances and pathways from the former Shea Circle to Shattuck Grove. On pathways and access to Schoolmaster Hill and on pathways around Scarborough Pond. Three new accessible pathways along Walnut Ave. Paved pathways on the Seaver Street edge of the park along with two new entrances along Seaver Street. And Improved and restored entrances and accessibility at the entrances of Glen Road, Walnut Ave, Valley Gates, and on American Legion Highway at the Playground and Franklin Hill Avenue. Now over to Max. Thanks, Claire. 
India seeks to increase exports amid U.S.-China tensions. India will focus on boosting its exports to the United States and other global markets as Chinese shipments become unattractive amid a trade war between the world's biggest economies, the country's trade minister said. New Delhi is focusing on items like auto parts, chemicals, and electrical equipment after the, the United States and China slapped reciprocal duties on each other's goods, Minister Suresh Prabhu said. India's share of global merchandise exports is 1.7%, compared with China's 12.8%. The ongoing trade tensions between the U.S. and China may have positive impact, Prabhu said. The long-term strategy is to focus on enhancing manufacturing capabilities. With President Trump expected to go ahead with another round of tariffs on $200 billion of imports from China in January, India looks to gain. Southeast Asia is already seeing a boom in foreign direct investment as the trade war prompts companies to shift production to that region. The rising tensions could derail established trade orders like the World Trade Organization and will hurt smaller nations, Prabhu said. This is not a welcome development for sustaining a free and fair trade. Back to you, Bob. Along with my colleagues, Claire and Max, we thank you for listening to the Talking News and hope you've enjoyed the show. We return next week for another edition of Local News Happenings Around Belmont.